0: talking of discipleship, we're studying in the book of Titus right now. And in the book of Titus, we are seeing in chapter one, the qualifications of elders, qualifications of pastors, who has God called to be pastors in his church. And uh, we've seen that it's not superhuman. It's not anything crazy. it's, It's living the Christian life. So what is it to live the Christian life? Well, that's what it is to be qualified to be an elder. God gave specific qualifications for who the servant leaders of the church should be, and he did this because he cares deeply for the order and health of his people. In, In the letter Paul wrote to Titus, he gave those qualifications of how and who to appoint in Crete. That's the audience that he's specifically writing to. Then, directly after he gives those qualifications, he tells why those qualifications are needed, because Titus and healthy churches need to strict uh, need to stick to strict adherence to these qualifications because lots of people who treasure things more highly than Jesus are interested in influencing the church. I'll, I'll walk that back. People are interested in influence. It's just something that we see. Look at government. People love power. Look at your jobs. People hold on to power in your jobs that really— doesn't matter because it's, it's just a, like, grasp at power. You've probably all seen that in some workplace or school scenario where it's, like, it doesn't matter who's the the lead of our group project. Like, it's fine. Like, you don't have to flex on that. It's fine. Um, so whatever whatever the situation is, people love power. People love influence. And so the church is a place of influence. It makes sense that people who love things and treasure things other than Jesus— are going to be interested in influencing the church. Now, that type of person is a false teacher. Now, when we think of false teachers, you probably, I do, think of famous televangelists, and those false teachers do exist, but false teachers don't have to be famous. They don't have to be well-known and rich and famous. They're all around us, which admittedly sounds like a great way to stir up some paranoia and distrust. We're kind of all keeping an eye out for which one's the false teacher. So as we consider who false teachers are, we have to be wise and innocent. We have to extend trust, but we also have to stay on guard. The text here that we're looking at today in verses 10 through 16, it's directed to the local church. So I want to stay in our sermon today directed at the local church as well and I won't commit much time to celebrity pastors who, or people who might or might not be identified as false teachers. So rather than walking through a list of like, hey, here's who I approve and here's who I disapprove, I just want to encourage you to talk about who you're giving influence to in your life with your elders. Uh, it, are there favorite pastors that you have? Are there people that you listen to all the time? I would say It's useful if that's outside of the context of the local church to talk to your elders about that, not because we're your babysitters, but because God has given us to you for a resource that, hey, can I trust these people that hopefully your elders are are staying on guard as God has commanded and we can speak into that. So I'm not going to give that whole list. I just want to encourage you to talk with your pastors. There are some really great famous pastors and they're worth learning from. Being famous doesn't make you a false teacher. And then, and then there are some really terrible famous pastors. And then there are some in between. So I just, I just want to urge you to, to come to your elders, use us as a resource and all of that. But I also want to mention this in that vein, is that there's a small industry of something called like discernment blogs, and a lot of times those discernment blogs though sometimes can be helpful many times they could more accurately be called division blogs because all they do is point fingers and call other people names there are some that are like that and so there's there's people who make money as bloggers and YouTubers who call everyone who breathes a heretic or false teacher and that in the end makes them really be false teachers Um, So, I would say in in what you're accessing online and in the World Wide Web, be discerning, be wise, and and wisdom recognizes that not every issue is a first or even second tier issue, that we can disagree on some things and still learn from people, Um, but it's good to be reminded that in this incredibly blessed time of endless information that God gave you, elders to help sift through what is true and what is false that's that's what we're seeing here in Titus that, that God gave you elders for a purpose and it's sometimes awkward to talk about it as an elder because I'm not like I know everything and come to me and I, there's might there might be sometimes I don't know and that's a good thing to kick around and let's do some research but in all those things God has given elders as a resource in Titus 1 God gives the qualifications of elders and then he describes the unqualified or maybe even if you're looking down into verse 10 maybe even the anti-qualified like not just not just not able to be elders but those who are in the way of the health of the church right there, there's some who are immature growing up w- that are needing training to become mature in the faith and there's some who are actively engaging in hurting and um, dividing the church so what we what we're looking at here in verses 10 through 16 is specifically those who are more than unqualified these are not just um, these are not these are not faithful teachers they're false teachers and look how God's word talks about false teachers look at that in verse 10 this is what God's word says actually why don't we do this why don't we read the the whole passage together verses 10 through 16 For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I want to do this just quickly before we get into that text and looking into it. Would you pray with me just as we head into discussing this? Father, as we consider false teachers and those who cause division and teach things that are not true, I pray that you would help us to see the the underlying issue there. God, that that there is a a treasure problem that ultimately... They don't treasure you above all things. God, I pray that we would be a church that treasures you above all things and that we would desire you so much that those who push against you would would be obvious to us, that they would stick out like sore thumbs because they're not like who you have called us to be. God, I I thank you for uh, your word that you've given us a way to understand and know and follow after you. I pray that you help us be faithful to this text. Praise in your name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see in just verse 10 is a a help in identifying false teachers. How do we identify false teachers? The end of Titus 1, really all of it, gives us a lot of information for recognizing false teachers in our midst. I mean, just look at verse 10, these four descriptors from this one verse. We see insubordinate, we see empty talkers, we see deceivers and legalistic. And I would argue that maybe this list is not as scary as we would assume the description of a false teacher would be. I almost want this list to include, like, horns and a tail. Like, that's what, you'll know the false teacher. It'll be that obvious. Or maybe at least a private jet. Like, if there was something along those lines, then we could we could figure it out. But seriously, in my mind, sometimes I only think of false teachers as those who deny foundational biblical truths. Like, those that teach Jesus isn't good Jesus isn't God or that Jesus isn't man like those who teach that we shouldn't suffer like those who teach that the gospel is primarily about social benefits but Paul starts about identifying the insubordinate that's how he starts now all that is true of false teachers false teachers do teach all of that but it's not only that Paul starts by identifying the insubordinate that's not again I mean. It's a good thing I'm not writing scripture, because that's not what I would have written. But Paul is coming in and saying, look, if you're looking for people who are going to be in the way, anti-qualified, then look for those who are insubordinate. There are many who are unwilling to obey the instructions of those in authority. That's basically what insubordination is, is being unwilling to obey the instructions of those in authority. At at first glance, you might think, well, that's not too bad, right? I mean, like, that that happens to everybody all the time. But, But it God has called his church to order. And as God has called his church to order, he's given roles to those in the church. He's given roles in society. I mean, God has given order to society. We think about insubordination to parents, insubordination to governments. We're going to see in the next chapter insubordination to masters, insubordination to elders. To be insubordinate to human authority is oftentimes simply disobedience to God makes me think about how Moses talked about the Israelites at times. You're not really disobeying me. You're really disobeying God. So God has said, watch out for those who are insubordinate because insubordination in uh, the realm of who I have put in authority is really disobeying what I have given them. And insubordination reeks of pride and arrogance and strength. God wants us to be humble and selfless and weak. So he says, watch out for the insubordinate. He also says deceivers. Look out for the deceivers. Men and women who put their desires at odds with the truth. Deceivers are people who put their desires at odds with the truth. They would rather create confusion and lies than live in the truth. Proverbs twelve twenty two gives a really clear description of how God feels about deceptive people, about how he feels about lies. He says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. That's a pretty strong word. That helps get the message across. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Jesus declares himself as the truth. To lie is to deny the truth. It's to set yourself above God and say, God, I know better than what is actually true because I've got a plan that's better than your plan. So God, I'll do what I want instead of submitting to what you want. So God says, watch out for the deceivers. And then watch out for legalists. And what I mean by legalist or legalism here is elevating law and tradition to the level of gospel. That we look at law and tradition and say, that's, that's on par with following after Jesus, that's on par with the gospel. In the gospel of Mark, we read about the Pharisees confronting Jesus about his disciples eating without washing their hands, and this made them unclean. And Jesus quoted Isaiah back to them in Mark 7. He said, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? (laughs) As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is legalism. This is putting traditions and man's rules above God's rules and God's way and, and pursuing God, fellowship with God. All of God's commands, truly, the goal of God's commands Make us rely on him and love him more. That's what his commands do. They make us rely on him and love him more. And so if we start saying, well, I love the command more than I love Jesus. Well, you don't get the command. (laughs) You don't understand it. The command should be pointing you to loving Jesus. It should be pointing you to fellowship with Jesus. If we start to make those commands more important than the command giver, then we're missing the mark. Then they become the traditions of men. And that's what circumcision had become in the early church. That's the reference there. Many were elevating this law as a way to manufec- manufacture piety. Like, look at how good we are. Do this. Where well, God had never called for that. God had only called to follow after him, to deny yourself and follow me, take up your cross. He'd never requested that his followers in christ have to do anything other than repent and believe we had a group of false teachers here in crete saying jesus and yes jesus and that's the heart of legalism is that jesus isn't enough to be saved to follow after christ to truly love jesus it's jesus and and as a church we must heed paul's warning we must hear heed god's warning People who love the law more than the lawgiver are not cut out to lead his people. And in fact, the people who are leading, people who believe and act in this way, are a major reason why God instructs the church to have shepherds. It's the reason why there are people leading. He says, hey, you need church to have qualified shepherds. You need to have qualified overseers, elders, pastors, because there will be people like this trying to influence in your church. There will be people more Interested in having influence and sway, power for themselves, traditions of man, than loving and treasuring Jesus above all things. God has called pastors to help identify these false teachers. So what do we do when we identify people like this? False teachers. Verse 11 is, again, more bold than I would be on my own, and I love that. I love when scripture like catches me off guard a little bit. This is what verse 11 says these people these these false teachers they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach that's, that's how that's the context of we know these are false teachers he's referencing because they're teaching shamefully what they ought not teach so we've got to silence false teachers i looked around in a bunch of different translations to see if there was a softer way to say that there's not it's it's silence false teachers you know False teachers have <laughs> have a lot in common with alarm clocks, or at least I guess my alarm clock, uh, because I'll set my alarm clock and snooze it um, like 20 times, and it's like we just need to silence it. You just need to get rid of it. You need to turn it off because what does it do when you let your alarm clock ring for two hours in the morning in 10 minute <laughs> in 10 minute intervals? Well, it it uh, it upsets the whole family, uh, or at least your wife uh, on the other side of the bed. I think that's how we probably need to think about uh, false teachers is that they are doing more harm than good. They're doing harm. And so we shouldn't just think of them as um, as passerbys. But what what we learn here is that false teachers are causing harm to the church. They're called wolves in Acts. I mean, that's the perception is that they are upsetting whole families It's a it's a scary phrase to think of silencing false teachers. In America we don't believe in silencing people or we didn't used to. What does it mean to silence someone in this verse? Notice at the end of the 11, at the end of verse 11 the reason for silencing them. And, and that reason is that they're teaching what not be what ought not be taught. And for a reason they're teaching what ought not be taught for what? for financial gain they're teaching for financial gain the csb translates it like this which is another great we usually use the esv the csb is another great translation it says it is necessary to silence them these false teachers they are ruining entire households by teaching what they should shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly Here's the main idea from the text today, and I've already hinted at this. False teachers have a different treasure than the church. False teachers have a different motivation, because they have a different treasure than the church of Christ. God's church is not motivated by financial gain. Christ's church is motivated out of love for Jesus. This is the heart of what Paul's saying here at the end of chapter one, whereas the Christian should be drawn. To think and act out of love for Jesus, the false teacher is drawn to think and act out of a love for worldly things, namely your money. I wonder if it's hard to recognize false teachers in our modern church because so many of us share their treasure. It's hard, it's hard to know when two people are in the same place when you're in the same room. I mean, it, how do we see when we can't see what was going on outside of us, we're all treasuring the same thing. We want comfort and wealth and approval and ease of life. And Jesus gets some of our desire, too. (laughs) Yeah, you too, Jesus. But no, church, that, that can't be. It can't be that Jesus gets some desire, too. Jesus says, I will be your one and only. There can be nothing else. It has to be Jesus alone, Christ alone as our one great desire. Everything else, everything else in our life has to fit through the prism of treasuring Christ more than anything. It can't sit alongside of it. It can't be in front of it. It has to be completely subservient to our love And joy in Christ. But for many of us, and at times, I mean 100%, myself included, we get it wrong. We elevate the things of this world. We have wrong desires. But consider, God created us to be with him. To want him, to love him, to fellowship with him, to dwell with him, to abide with him, to be filled with all his fullness. That's what he created us for. It's the reason, not just that he created us, but it's also the reason that he came for us. He created us to be with them. We rebelled. We said, no, thank you, God. We'd like the things of this world instead, these lesser things that we'll toy with for a while and then end in destruction. Thanks anyway. And God said, I'm not going to leave you in it. I'm coming for you. And he came for us for the same reasons he created us, because he loves us and he wants us to love him and to fellowship with him and to be filled with all his fullness he came to restore what our sin broke tell me you can't feel the brokenness of sin in your world tell me you can't feel the need for restoration in your world don't you see it all the time it's one of the reasons that we sing about jesus coming again because when he comes it will be perfectly restored There's no more little by little. God created us to be with him, and in our sin, we rejected God's design. That's what sin is. Sin is rejecting God. And look, that's that's the starting place of salvation, recognizing you're a sinner. Jesus says in Mark 2.17 that he came not to save the righteous, not to save the well, But he came to save the sinner. He came to save the sick. If you're thinking to yourself, I finally got my sin under control in a way that now I'm good enough to become a Christian, then you're not ready to become a Christian. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is that none of us are good enough. It doesn't matter how good you get. It doesn't matter how many good things you do or how moral you make your life. You will always be corrupted and ruined by sin. All of us have been corrupted and ruined by sin. And it is only the work of Christ that can restore what sin has corrupted. Christian, for you, don't forget that. that's, That's where the gospel starts, in recognizing your sin. But... Christian, if you forget where you are as a sinner in need of grace, in need of Jesus' righteousness every day, then what does that make you? It'll make you arrogant and prideful, and it'll make you legalistic, that you've got your ducks in a row, but you don't have ducks in a row. Jesus does. So we keep pointing as sinners in need of restoration to Christ with other sinners around us. Guys, look. We all need Him. He is the only way. Jesus doesn't save the good enough. He didn't come for the righteous. He saves the not good enough. He saves the sinner. He saves the sick. So we must humble ourselves before God and recognize our sin. You can't overcome your sin. You can't fix it or make it right. Not even a little. Not even a little. The first step of salvation is not to fix part of your sin. It's to recognize that you are completely trapped in your sinfulness. You are dead in your sin and trespasses. And by no means of your own can you be saved. You you need to be saved by only Jesus. And this is foundational for us because Because it helps us, hopelessly lost people, turn to our one and only hope in Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was by his effort and his perfection and his desire that a way was made for us to escape our sin. That was the perfect life. The way that was made for our escape was the perfect life the death that we deserved, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did it all. So a question that I want to make sure you hear me ask this morning is, do you want to escape your sin? Do you want to be free from the burden and weight of your sin, of trying to live within a design you were not designed for? And Do you want to follow after the Savior who loves you and cares for you and wants to be with you? who is truly beautiful and truly perfect. When we follow after Jesus, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're drawn to him. No longer are the things of this world our great treasure, only Jesus. Only the one who opened our eyes to his goodness. A false teacher comes in aiming for something different than the church. Because the faithful church is only ever aiming for her savior. The faithful church only ever aims for our savior. Forsaking wealth and comfort and titles. Power. In this way, a false teacher should be easy to spot. If the church looks like this, if a church looks like a people being drawn to Christ, then a false teacher should be easy to spot. But then what aim does our church have? What aim do you have? Could you honestly say Christ alone is your aim? That I want Jesus more than anything? What is the goal of your marriage? Is it Christ alone? What is the goal of your degree? Is it Christ alone? What's the goal of your sport? What's the goal of your church attendance? Is it Christ alone? If Christ alone is not the great goal, and if someone is teaching something other than sound doctrine they should be silenced now obviously this isn't <clears throat> this isn't duct taping people's mouth shut though the original language would have kind of hinted at that i mean it's that serious it's do what it takes to not let them influence the congregation because false teaching should not be allowed this isn't like a debate where we hear all sides and say hey yeah let's let's in the church we say this is this is how Christ wants to be followed because he has given it to us definitively in his word. We don't have to debate. It's in his word. We go to his word and preach his word. We don't preach man-made ideas to debate. This isn't science class though we do appreciate all those scientific questions and we encourage those because knowledge helps us know and love Jesus. But in the matter of theology, in the matter of doctrine, we look to Christ's word alone. crucial element for silencing false teachers is rebuking them look at verse 12 it says one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said "Cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons i, I think that's uh, probably a, 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 a interesting more than that statement I, i'd be interested to know the context of that quote he and paul says <laughs> paul says this testimony is true <laughs> therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. All right, so we've seen identifying false teachers, and here we see silencing false teachers, and now rebuke false teachers. Rebuke false teachers. Obviously, Cretans had a well-deserved reputation. They knew about it themselves. They were liars and evil and lazy. And I would argue that some of the the point that Paul's making is he knows that every reader— from that moment on, would be able to relate to that. Aren't we all? Aren't we all able to be accused before Christ of that? Isn't that true of all of our cultures? Naturally, naturally we're shaped by our culture. And the way our culture shapes us will seep into our beliefs about God and His Word if left unchecked. That's a natural tendency. A natural tendency is to drift into cultural norms rather than biblical norms. The Cretans were dragging their old ways into their walk with Christ. And that's not a unique problem to the Cretans. I mean isn't isn't something I mean I just talked about the temptation of wealth and comfort titles power aren't those things aren't those great desires that are true in our culture? And don't those desires in our culture seep into the American church? This is who our culture is constantly trying to mold us into. But God tells us that's no excuse. What the culture tries to mold you into is no excuse. His instruction is to rebuke them sharply. Our job isn't to make excuses for sin and ungodliness and bad doctrine. Our job is to root it out. We get rid of it. We don't play with sin. We get rid of it. Why would we keep anything around that gets in the way of being with our great treasure? We tear down those walls. We surrender everything to Jesus. We go sell everything to go by the field with the treasure in it. He is our great treasure, and we do everything to be near him. Paul tells Titus to rebuke the Cretans sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. This is an expectation the church should have for its elders. That when you let the dominant culture direct your doctrine, you will find rebuke from your pastors. You hear that, church members? That you should expect that if dominant culture begins to, to direct your doctrine, that your pastors should come to you. And let me tell you, you will not enjoy that. <laughs> I have yet to see a person or hear a story where it's like, you know what? He really called me out on a sin I was steeped in, and it was great. I'm thankful. I say I've yet to see that. I have seen that. And I praise God for seeing that. I don't see it often because many of us are defensive about our sins. But we should be prepared to not be defensive about our sins, but grateful for those who God has put in our lives to call us out in our sin. If Jesus is our great treasure. If Jesus is your great treasure, you will hear, hey, you're you're letting culture dictate your doctrines and you will say, how show me? I don't want that. But if Jesus is not your great treasure, you will be defensive and you won't want to hear that. And you will say, no, I'm good. It should be the expectation in a healthy church that there would be rebuke to theological error. Paul's heart in commanding rebuke here is to keep the congregation from myths and lies. We have plenty of modern day examples of that. God's people have no uh, no problem hearing political and cultural uh, stories and saying, "Yes, I'll, I'll join in." It, it happens as pastors are called to rebuke, pastors are also called not to be domineering. We see that balance from 1 Peter 5. So this isn't to say pastors just get to come in and be like, hey, you're wrong, go my way. It's, it should be a conversation of correction, gentle and loving. But when that, is, when that is rebuffed, then that rebuke becomes stronger. That's the instruction here. A harsh rebuke is for those who, it is a pattern Hey, we've done this over and over. You are creating division and problems. So it's not an image of domineering. It's, a, it's an image of protection. It's an image of shepherding. Elders are responsible for identifying, silencing, and rebuking false teachers. But then Paul really circles back at the end of this, and we see more identification. Look at what we see in verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So I think a good question here would be to know yourself. Who are you in reading verses 15 and 16? Are you the pure or are you the defiled and unbelieving? And the way that we can know is in verse 16. Verse 16 fleshes that out. It's clarification that We know this because of our works. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul has no patience for false teachers, he has no patience for those in the church who cause division. That's how it plays out in real life, that we see it in their fruit. The last passage that I want to look at together with you is Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, flip over there. Matthew chapter 7. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's verse 15. And it connects well to what Titus is saying here. It's almost like Paul knew the teachings of Jesus. (laughs) It's almost like Paul was directed by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, that it might all connect and be one. Matthew 7, verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them how? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wouldn't you be glad to have a harsh rebuke rather than to be thrown into the fire without rebuke? Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Hear me clearly. Your works do not save you. That is not what this passage is saying. Your good things don't save you. But if you are in Christ, you will be walking in the light. If you are in Christ, you will bear the fruit of the spirit that is living inside of you. As you are filled with all the fullness of God, you will overflow into your actions and in your words. You will have fruit of a new life. So I want to ask, who are you? What fruit are you bearing? Does your life give evidence to a rebirth, to a a Holy Spirit indwelling, to a desire to follow Jesus more than anything, that he would be your great treasure? Or are you far from Christ? Are you maybe even a false teacher and when you look at verse 10, you're like, that honestly could describe me and my patterns. Who are you? Do you desire Christ? Give your life to him today. Bear the good fruit. I promise you, I promise you that following after Christ, he is, he is the greatest treasure of all treasures. We know know from Scripture, you don't have to take my word for it. I'm I'm not like up here as a 31-year-old saying like, trust all my life experience. I'm saying trust the word of God. That in Christ, all the things of the world fade away. That in Christ, our eyes are set on him. Our heart is with him. Our treasure is with him. He said, repent and believe. He said, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Do you want to be saved this morning? Do you want to let Jesus define who you are? I'll be at the back. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you about following Jesus. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship our Savior? God, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We don't, we don't deserve your love and your mercy. God, we don't deserve to be cared for by you and for you to... Dwell with us, but God, you love us and you have given yourself for us. So now we can say that even though we are not worthy, we are worthy in you because you are worthy. I thank you for the way that you cover us in your righteousness, that we don't have to rely on our works or our righteousness, but we get to rely on your righteousness for our salvation. I thank you for your blood. Thank you for the empty grave. God, we do pray. Come back soon, God. Come to restore what is broken. Father, we love you. We pray in your name. Amen.